We rejoice in you and in your birth, the fact that you came and became a man without becoming any less God is just, it's beyond our comprehension. We can believe it, we can say it, but to comprehend it, we need your help. And so we pray, Lord, that your spirit would open to us a better understanding of who you are this Christmas season and that you came as the ultimate missionary, leaving that place that you were familiar, recognized, and privileged to be at, and you came and became and humbled yourself and emptied yourself of yourself. And you did that, Lord, to reach another culture, so to speak, another people, and you did it to reach the world. And so we think of our missionaries at this time, and some... Uh, are in tropical climates that's not even conducive to really feeling and experiencing Christmas. Others are are experiencing that, but sensing the distance and separation from family. And so we pray that you would comfort, your spirit would comfort. And right now, even as we pray around the world, your spirit would connect with them and reassure them that they are not forgotten, that their sacrifices are not meaningless and that they are being lifted up in prayer. And we especially pray for Terry's brother, who lost his family tragically this summer. And we pray for uh, Rick and the loss of his wife. And yet, Lord, these are not permanent losses. They're just temporary grief, because ultimately we have the hope of the gospel. And so, Lord, may we all be very aware this Christmas, whether it's family, friends, here at church, at work, school, There's people all around us that don't have that gospel hope. And so I pray that uh, all that we say and do, not only in this hour, but the hour next, that it would draw us closer to you and would give us your eyes, your heart for the lost people around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. All right, I hope you're uh, all excited about Christmas. What is today? I need to pull this down just a, a little bit more. Don't I, Audra? Audra can never get that totally down. She tries, but she can't. What Sunday is it today? Third Sunday of Advent. The third Sunday of Advent. So we want to light the the first candle, and that is the promise candle. Why? Because the coming of Christ was predicted all the way back in Genesis 3.15. But the second candle is the preparation candle. And why is that? Because if you believe the promises that Christ is coming again, then you will be prepared. And I always think of Simeon and Anna, how they were prepared. So many were unprepared. They knew the promises, but they didn't trust the promises. But today, the third Sunday, I always call this the proclamation candle, because those who are truly prepared for His coming show that by proclaiming that He is coming. And they share that good news with others. And I always think on this third Sunday of Advent, I always think of the shepherds, how once they heard the good news, they proclaimed that to other people. Well, what we're doing uh, this Advent is unwrapping Christmas from Philippians 2. And so if you turn there in your Bibles, and as you do, think about this, that so far in Philippians 2, what we've seen is that when you unwrap Christmas, when you really understand the meaning of Christmas, you first see the cradle. (coughs) Then it's kind of like those gifts. There's a gift within the gift. And and once you unwrap the cradle, you see the cross. And last week we saw that the cross overshadows the cradle. But 
this morning, what I want you to see in Philippians 2, that when you unwrap the cross, you're going to find a crown. And so that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. As you look again at Philippians 2, you see that Christmas is his story. And the amazing thing about Philippians 2 is it takes us from eternity past to the cradle of Bethlehem, to the cross of Golgotha, to the crown and the exaltation, all the way into eternity future. So let's look at it and let's read again, follow along. I hope you have your Bibles, open them up, turn them on, whatever you're doing. Let's look at God's Word. Look at verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind and maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And here's the application. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. And then the example is laid out for us in what is the one of the earliest recorded uh, Christmas songs, less than 30 years after it actually happened. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Wow. What we're going to look at is verses 9 through 11. We're going to see that the Christ of, we're going to see the Christ of Christmas with his crown. We're going to look at the theology of the exaltation and we're going to see that the spirit of Christmas is surrendering everything. Now, before we do that, I want to make sure, how many of you, I hope you all, and if you don't, I need somebody to help me. Uh, Everybody got this handout? You all need this? Everybody, anybody need that? Everybody pick that up with their lesson sheet. Pull that out because that's what we're going to be looking at. Let's, let's unwrap the spirit of Christmas and we find a crown. The first thing I want you to see is this. The crown is sovereign in the cradle and the cross. The crown is sovereign in the cradle. And pick up, by the way, while you're all rushing over there, pick up the half sheet too. Pick up the half sheet too. So we got, oh, this is good. I'm telling you, this is good stuff. This is awesome, awesome stuff. You need this. So, uh, and we're not going to go all throughout it. That's why I want you to have it. I want you to have a copy of it and look. Now, look at, you can go ahead and look at that handout. And it says, the crown is sovereign in the cradle and on the cross. What we've been doing, each of these messages at the beginning, is wanting you to trace the cross, the crown, the cradle, the cross and the crown and see how they interconnect. Now, all we're going to all we're going to do is you look on that left-hand column it says Jesus was king in the cradle in his incarnation. On the right-hand side it says Jesus was king on the cross in his crucifixion. And all I did on that left-hand side 
is I looked at the Christmas accounts in the Gospels and I looked for every indication that Jesus was king. And on the right-hand side, I looked at the end of every Gospel account, at the crucifixion stories, and looked for every indication that Jesus was king. And to the best of my ability, I discovered that there are seven indications of each, which is a glorious number of completion and made me very happy. But if you'll look at that, I won't work this through here. Here's what I want you to do with this. Hey, this week, you need to take this and look at I was blessed beyond to really see how God, Christ was sovereign, even as a helpless baby. Christ was sovereign, even as a helpless uh, sufferer on the cross. And I just want to make two observations. You read the, these verses, you look them up this week, and you have a glorious Christmas time of adoration. You do that on your own. But let me make two very general observations. On the left-hand side, the first observation I want you to see is that as the king in the cradle, the focus is on being related to King David as the rightful king. The focus on everything on that left-hand side. And as you look up those verses on your own, you're going to see that it says that Jesus is the son of David. That Jesus is from the house of David. That Jesus was born in the city of David. And that Jesus was going to receive the throne of David. Do you see a pattern there? David. 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 Why? Because you had to be a son of David to be the rightful heir. And the climax comes on that left-hand side in the final story, the final reference to Jesus as king in the, in the uh, Christmas accounts of the Gospels. Number seven down there, it says, the climax comes where the magi, the wise men come, and they ask point blank, where is he who has been born king of the Jews. And who do they ask that to? None other than the Roman puppet king Herod. Herod, who was king because of selfishness. Herod, the king who was there because of, of empty ambition. All the things that in Philippians 2, Paul says, don't do, that's why he was king. And here they, they, they say, where is the rightful king? Where is that true king of the Jews born? And you know the story. Well, here's the point of all those accounts. The rightful heir is here. The king has come, but not in the way anyone would expect. He came by an incarnation in a cradle of humiliation. On the right-hand side, here's the observation I want you to, to note. On the right-hand side, when you read through those accounts, you're going to see as the king on the cross, the focus is on being rejected as the rightful heir. So, when he was born, he was revealed to be the rightful heir and related properly to David. But on the cross, he's rejected as the rightful king. And as you move down through those seven instances, you see that the Jewish high priest rejects him and yet says, and yet in a, in a backhanded way concedes that he is the king. The Roman governor, Pilate, does it. The Jewish leaders do it and the people do it. And especially the Roman soldiers reject the rightful heir. When you read the stories of what the Roman soldiers... In fact, it says an entire cohort. And I looked up, what is a cohort? A cohort could be as many as 480 to 800 men. Can you imagine being surrounded by 800 Roman soldiers? And here's what they do to Jesus. They dress him in the royal color of purple. 
They twist a crown of cursed thorns and thrust it upon his head. They place a stick in his hand as a, as a cheap scepter. And then they say to him, Hail, King of the Jews. They, their tongues confess, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they take that, that mockery of a scepter, they take that stick and they beat him on the head. And when you really think about the, the symbolism of that, it's mind-blowing. The scepter is the, is, the, is the symbol of authority. They're beating Jesus with his own authority upon his head. And they spit upon him and they slap him. All the while, 800 men are bowing and kneeling there before him in mockery. Wow before the one who is fully God and fully man. I just kind of paused this week and just thought of beating God. Wow. And what those men must be thinking now if they didn't turn to Jesus. What they're thinking in, in, in eternity of hell. And even the two rebels are crucified, mock him with those around the cross. And here's what they say. He saved others. He cannot save himself. What's the irony of that? He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And yet if he would have come down, no one could have believed in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. You see, they're all confessing with their tongue that Jesus is king. And yet in doing so, they're rejecting him. And then we see upon the cross written in every language of the then-known world in Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. It says, this is the King of the Jews, Jesus the Nazarene. So the Jewish leaders complained to Pilate, and here's what they say. This is irony as well. Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, he claimed that he was the King of the Jews. And yet Pilate responded, I have written what I have written. In a sense, Roman authority affirmed, this is how it is. He is the king of the Jews, and he's being crucified for that. And of course, the climax in that right-hand column, as you look at that, comes in the last one, number seven, where the Roman centurion, symbolizing all the power and authority of Rome, stands directly in front of the cross and says these words, truly, this is the Son of God. Wow. Now, here's the point. The rightful heir is rejected. The king has come, indeed. He's the real king, the rightful king, but he's mocked. He's humiliated. He's crucified and yet confessed one way or another. Some in belief, the majority in unbelief. So we see that the cradle and the cross and the crown are not separated things. They're not just linear things that happen in history. Here's the cradle and then's the cross and then the crown. No, what we see is that these are theologically and practically interrelated. Why? Because they're all in one person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Without the incarnation, the crucifixion would mean nothing. And without the incarnation, the exaltation of Jesus as Lord of Lords and King of Kings would never happen. I want you to take a look at this video and see how it kind of captures what we've what we've learned so far from Philippians 2. Take a look at this.
man, that's just that's just some good stuff, and that's the really theme of what we're looking at. So let's let's look at point number two there in your notes as we dive into Philippians two nine through eleven. The spirit of surrender. All that we just saw in that video, all that we are talking about, <coughs> excuse me, is made possible because of the spirit of surrender that is seen even in Christ's exaltation. Look again at verses 9 through 11. Look there again in Philippians 2. Look at verses 9 through 11. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name or the name that belongs to Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of who? Of God the Father. So let's take a look at this. We've seen, now you want to pull this little puppy out, because basically this is our road map to Philippians 2. This is our road map. And to be honest with you, this is the whole gospel. Here's the gospel. It's as simple as John 3.16, but it is as complete as everything that you see here on that page. And you kind of want to keep that in front of you because it maps us out. Now, we've seen how low Jesus would go. That's verses 6 through 8. And we see this slow stair step down. How low would he go? Incarnation, humiliation, crucifixion. How low? The shameful death of a slave. But then you see in verses 9 through 11 how high the Father will lift him up. And there you see not steps, but it's like an elevator straight up. Straight up. He he skips over. He assumes the resurrection. He assumes the ascension. He assumes what is called the session, the seating of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And he just says, look at this slow, agonizing deceit. Uh, descent into humiliation, but then God acts. See, in verses 6 through 8, Jesus is the one emptying himself, humbling himself. But then, decisively, in verse 9, Jesus, uh, God the Father intervenes, and whoosh, he goes to the highest place and is given the name that is above every name. But we're going to see that even in the end part, verses 10 and 11 of Philippians 2, it doesn't just end with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. It continues with His vindication back here on earth as He comes and He comes again. This is Advent, His first coming. But we're anticipating the second coming. And when He comes a second time, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now that is just awesome. Amen. And that is what we, that's the promise we're claiming at this point in redemptive history. That's what we are to be a prepared people like Simeon and Anna. That is what we are to proclaim that Jesus is Lord like the shepherds did. You see, we are a part of the ongoing Christmas story because when you unwrap Christmas, you find a crown. And what you see in what is mapped out here on this piece of paper is that the spirit of surrender teaches us that God always exalts His humble servants. Always. And He does it decisively. And He does it completely super exalting. So I want to do for the rest of this lesson, I just want to answer 
four vital questions about Jesus' exaltation. Let's see how we do. Number one, why did God the Father exalt Jesus? Why did God the Father? Look at verse 9. It tells us, for this reason. Now, the general reason is verses 6 through 8. For this reason, God exalted Jesus because Jesus was such a humble, obedient servant, even to the point of a shameful cross death. So we know that. But but what was the reason for the exaltation? And, And I've got three options here. Was it just a reward? Was God merely rewarding Jesus? Did Jesus earn the exaltation by His humble obedience? Or number two, was it just a rule that God the Father enforced? It was just kind of a mechanical rule? Or number three, was it more of a relationship that they both enjoyed? Let's take each of those and just consider them for a moment. It's easy to look at verse 9 and think, oh... Jesus earned this. The reason he was exalted, it was just a reward that the Son of God earned. And let me say, it's impossible to eliminate this as part of the reason. Because what does it say in verse 9? For this reason. And who's acting in verses 6 through 8? Jesus is acting and Jesus is being rewarded. But is it just a reward that Jesus earned? If this is all it is, then it reduces the gospel to a performance gospel. It reduces what God did to a performance gospel that makes God out to be our debtor. So if we're supposed to follow Jesus' example, and we are in this passage, if that's the case, then we could come to God and say, because I humbled myself, now you have to reward me by exalting me. It isn't just a reward. It isn't just a reward. Number two, was it just a rule that God the Father enforced? It's impossible to eliminate this aspect completely in light of the rest of Scripture. After all, listen, in Matthew 23, 12, Jesus himself said these words, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted, period. I said it. That's true. In fact, all of Philippians 2 is just the fulfillment of those very words that Jesus taught. But he didn't just teach it once. In Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And again, in Luke 18, Jesus said it a third time, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And it wasn't just Jesus. It was his apostles. James, his own half-brother, says, James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Peter, the, his, his, uh, his beloved disciple Peter in 1 Peter 5.6 says these words, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at proper time. In fact, we're going to see in a little bit that Mary herself taught this principle to us in her Song in Luke 152 where she sings, He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. There's no doubt that a rule, a divine principle is being applied here. But is it just this? Is that all it is? Is it an absolute principle that automatically applies to anyone who is humble and anyone that's an obedient servant? 
If that's all it is, it reduces the gospel to a prosperity gospel. Why do I say that? It makes God into a divine slot machine. Why? Put humble obedience in, and the rule is you always get glorious exaltation back. See, it doesn't really matter if I have a relationship with God. As long as I'm humble, in fact... Listen, if you just start treating these things as principles and rules that are automatic, pretty soon it doesn't even matter who you are or who God is. Just be humble like Mother Teresa or Gandhi or be a humble servant of Buddha and you'll be glorified and exalted in the end. Now, we don't know what that end is and who's going to exalt you, but it's a principle. It's going to happen. You see the danger in just seeing it as a... Isolated rule. Hey, there's a reward in verse 9, and there's a rule in verse 9. But listen, the reason Jesus was exalted, it was more of a relationship they both enjoyed. It was a relationship that they both treasured. This is the pure gospel, not just performance, not just, not even prosperity. And why do I say this? Because the Lord brought to my mind Hebrews 12.2. What does Hebrews 12.2 say? It says, Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand. So what we see is, even though Jesus was humbling Himself, He saw something beyond this. He sought a joy of a relationship. I'm doing this because I love the Father. I'm doing this because I know on the other side of this, there is a joyful reunion and relationship. This is really brought out in John 17. Turn your Bibles to John 17. Here Jesus is praying on the night before His crucifixion. And He's really bearing His heart to the Father. And listen to how many times He's, He talks about glory and being with the Father, and us being with Him. Look at John 1, uh, I'm sorry, 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting His eyes to heaven, here's what He said. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. See, there's this, this relationship. You glorify Me, I glorify You. Verse 2. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given, he may give eternal life. And then he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is, this is about a relationship, not just re getting rewarded, not just having some rule applied to your life. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, and I love, here it is. Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see, what he is anticipating is a relationship built on joy and glory. Look, drop down to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, now he's praying for us whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you see the idea? Listen, what God is doing is He's acting on a relationship basis. And what Jesus is, is being rewarded with, and the rule is being applied to a, to a joyful relationship. 
Now, the, the reason or the proof from verse 9 that what's being done here is not something that Jesus earned and not just something that automatically happens like you put coins in a slot machine is one word in Philippians 2.9. Look at Philippians 2.9. And there's one word that tells you the reason why Jesus is being exalted. And it's that word bestowed in New American Standard or ESV, gave in your other translations. That one word is in the Greek, the word charizomai. And the reason I say that is so you can see charis, grace. It's the root word we get grace from. And this word is a powerful, abundant, joyful word that means to freely give. To freely, graciously, abundantly give out of just love. And it's used three times, three other times by Paul. And and let me just read this so you can get this idea. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In Galatians 3.18, speaking of Abraham, God says, For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise, but God has freely given to Abraham by means of a promise. And then in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says it again, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So why is Jesus exalted? It's because God the Father just freely, generously, graciously said, Look, I'm going to lift you up to the highest position. This is the ultimate answer. It's more than rewarding his efforts. It's more than God enforcing a rule. It's freely giving to Jesus what he and Jesus desired most, enjoying one another and sharing in the very glory of God. So you say, now what's this have to do with you and I? Well, it has a tremendous amount to do. So here's what I want you to ask this morning. Why do we surrender everything to God in serving Christ? Why do you get up early to come here and serve? Why do you stay here late to serve? Why do you take the first 10% of your hard-earned income and give it to the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do you give over that with your tithes over that to faith promise giving? Why do you do things when you don't feel like doing them? Why do you serve? Why have you sacrificed everything? Well, here's the question. Was, is it just for a reward? Is it just for what you're going to get? If so, that's not self-emptying. That's self-gratifying. Is it just because God enforces a rule in a very, well, I'm just doing this. I don't have to have a relationship with him. As long as I do these things, then I'm going to get my, my, I'm going to get it back in the end. Or is it more than that? Are you serving here because you enjoy a growing relationship with our generous and freely giving Heavenly Father? Are you doing this because right now and in the future you are enjoying a ongoing relationship with Jesus? Now I'm telling you, we surrender everything to the Lord because we want to be like Him 
and we want to be in His presence wherever that is, bringing glory to God the Father. That is Christmas. We're going to sing joy to the world. Joy to the world is the carol that really encompasses all that this lesson is teaching. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Why? Because this is what we're living for. So, the first question, why do you do it? Because God is a gracious, generous giver. It's in God's nature to do it. Here's the second question regarding Jesus' exaltation. How did God the Father exalt Jesus? If this is so gracious, so freely given, what is it like? What does He do? How did God the Father exalt Jesus? Well, look again at verse 9. God exalted Jesus in two ways. The the second way explains the first, okay? So there's two ways, and it's all in verse 9, very simple. Number one, God super-exalted Jesus in the greatest possible way. He super-exalted Him. And again... This is kind of caught in our translations a little bit. Listen to the New American Standard. God highly exalted him. The newest uh, version of the NIV says, God exalted him to the highest place. The New Living says, God elevated him to the place of highest honor. God lifted him high and honored him far above anything. All these translations are trying to capture one word, and it's that word exalt. But in that word, Paul put a a prefix in front of that word, and the prefix is hyper. He hyper-exalted him. When you hear the word hyper, besides thinking of certain individuals, what do you think of? What's that word telling you? Hyper. It just means like, over the top, excessively, will you calm down? Right? How did Jesus exalt... How did God the Father exalt Jesus? He hyper-exalted... super exalted him. And I think that's one of the reasons why he skips the resurrection, the ascension, the ascension, and he just kind of goes, whoosh! I mean, it's just like this, this massive intervention. Listen, when God exalts his humble servants, he does it super abundantly. Wow, it's just really awesome. Listen, Jesus is super exalted because there's no higher position that can be given than the one God gave him. There's no greater privilege than the one God gave him. There's no greater name than the one God gave him. Wow. Jesus got all that he gave up and then some. Why? Because God freely gives. He's a generous, gracious, super-exalting God. Now, I do need... This is really... We're dealing with the incarnation. Okay, I mean, my last three weeks, my mind's just... I mean, it just, it's mind-blowing, it's humbling, convicting, it's exalting. Jesus is super exalted, but it doesn't mean that he becomes greater than God, because he's always been what, or who? He's always been God. So how do you super exalt God? And the key is the incarnation. Do you understand that there is a, a human being on this planet who was born and who is now exalted, super exalted to the highest position over the entire universe, a human, a mere human, just like you and I, born like you were, hungered like you do, cried and and experienced pain like you do, and that human being is exalted over the entire universe. That's amazing. And the only reason it's true is because he's God as well. Wow. 
So how exactly, let me, let me make it more concrete because Paul does in verse 9, what do you mean by super exalted? Well, look at number 2, it explains. Paul explains it in verse 9. God freely gave Jesus Christ the name. And really emphasized the before that. The name. The unique name. The only name. Which is above every name. Look again at verse 9. God highly, super exalted Him and bestowed graciously, freely on Him the name which is above every name. Now what's the, what's the automatic question you ask when you read that? What's the name? I mean, what is the name? And, and, of course, if there's a question, then there's always people with a variety of options, okay? But we basically have two. Some think the name is Jesus. And to be quite honest, the way most of our Bibles are translated and the way most of us just naturally read that, uh, I've, I, I've, I've, that's what I've thought for, for, for you know, it's just, just kind of the natural way of looking at it. And it's true, isn't it, in the, in the, in the Christmas story? God is the one who is named, God is the one who gives the name to his incarnate son. You shall call his name what? Jesus. He gave him his earthly name. Which, by the way, means Yahweh saves. That's why it says in Matthew 121, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. A little already kind of telling us who is Jesus. If Yahweh saves and you're giving him this name because he will save his people, the implication is Jesus is who? It's Yahweh. He's God. And that's true. But God already gave him that name. So how can he give... He's not giving him... If he already gave that name at his incarnation, how can he give him that name at his exaltation? And it's true in the very next verse that it says that at the name of Jesus. Look at verse 10. That at the name of Jesus. But that can be just as easily understood to mean at the name that belongs to Jesus. So others think, and here's the second option, others think the name is Lord. All caps. Yahweh. The great I am. The name that the human being Jesus was given at his exaltation is Jesus is Lord. And if you look at verse 10, or I'm sorry, verse 11, if you read on to verse 11, that is what every tongue will confess. They will confess that Jesus Christ is who? Is Lord. They will confess that he has the name that is above all names. You can you can understand it this way. The Lord, who is He? Jesus Christ. Wow. Now, why is this important? Well, two other times Paul makes this same confession. If, if you would have asked the early church, if you would have asked the believers at Philippi, what is your most basic confession? What is it that you're banking your life on? Why is it that you gather and worship together? They would say in three simple words, Jesus is Lord. That is our baptismal confession. That is Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, there's that exaltation, you will be saved. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say and really mean it, 
and have it be saving. Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. But the clincher is this. Why do I think that the name above all names is Jesus, is Lord, is Yahweh? Because in verses 10 and 11, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 45. I want you to turn to Isaiah 45. Turn to Isaiah 45, and we want to look at verses 21 through 25. If you don't get anything today, look at this passage and get this. In fact, right in the margin of Philippians 2, Isaiah 45, 21 through 25. Are you there in your Bibles? Follow along as I read. We're going to pick it up in the middle of verse 21. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, God swearing by himself, it's going to happen. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and it won't turn back. And now notice that to me, now who's speaking? The Lord. There is no other, the great I am. To me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And they will say of me only in who? The Lord, all caps, only in Yahweh are righteousness, righteousness and strength. Now stop right there. Paul takes that and he quotes it in Philippians 2. And instead of to me, who does he put in? Jesus, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Now, that is heresy unless you can back it up. And by the incarnation, and by His humiliation, and by His crucifixion, Jesus backed it up. He is truly God. And then read verse 24, uh, verse, uh, the rest of verse 24, because we're going to come to that in just a moment. Men will come to Him. And notice, all who were angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be just, justified and will glory. So who is this Yahweh? He's the one true God. There is no other. And only in him is salvation. Who is he? None other than the lowly, humble, obedient, shamefully crucified Jesus of Nazareth. And it's ironic that in Isaiah 42, verse 8, in Isaiah 42, verse 8, the Lord says this as well. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. And yet he does give his name to another, but not really, because the other is himself, one God, three persons, blowing my mind. I can't explain it, but it's pretty awesome. That there's a human being who has been declared God and is exalted, super exalted to the highest place with the greatest power and all the privileges thereof. Now, we have a third question, and it's this. When did God the Father exalt Jesus? 
When did God the Father exalt Jesus? Now you've got to go back to your roadmap. You've got to ro- go to your roadmap, and you've got to see that the answer to when is three times. Three different times. He exalted Him in the past. When? At the resurrection, there's a past ac- exaltation when He goes from earth or even under the earth to heaven. Okay? And... and, and I don't, you know, this isn't the focus of this passage, and I don't have time to develop that, but he skips over the resurrection where Jesus is exalted with all power. He, he skips over the ascension where Jesus goes up and is exalted with all glory. He's received into a cloud. That's not a cloud filled with rain. That's a cloud filled with God's glory, the Shekinah cloud. And then at his session, that seating at the right hand, Jesus is exalted with all authority. So that happened in the past. That's why Jesus could say, even before he ascended, after he resurrected, he could say on the Mount of Olives to his disciples, all authority has been given to me. Okay, But there's a present exaltation in heaven. There's a present exaltation right now in heaven. He's exalted in heaven at the right hand of the Father. I love what Hebrews 2 says. Hebrews 2 says this, in verses 8 and 9. You have put all things in subjection under His feet. For in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that's not subject to Him. Hello, have you watched news lately, author of Hebrews? I'm not seeing all things subjected to Him. But it is. And by faith, we have to trust that. Because He says, but we do but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him but we do see him who was made a little lower than the angels namely Jesus because of the suffering of death crowned 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 with glory and honor so that by grace by the grace of God he might taste death taste death for everyone hey this is how it needed to be there's a past exaltation there's a present exaltation And yet, the focus in Philippians 9 is number three on the future exaltation from heaven to earth. From heaven to earth. That's verses 10 and 11. When will Jesus finally be exalted? At the second coming. That's what Advent, that's what we're looking forward to. When will Jesus finally be exalted in the future? After the church is raptured? After seven years of great tribulation and wrath? After the promises to Israel have been fully fulfilled, then Jesus will come again with His church and all His glory, and He will be finally vindicated on this earth, land right again on the Mount of Olives, where which He said all authority, and split it wide open, and triumphantly march into the city, which is His rightful city. How will Jesus finally be vindicated and exalted? It says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He really is the Lord, the great I Am. Isn't it ironic that at His crucifixion, they bowed the knee in mockery and they said with the tongue in mockery, you are the King of the Jews? Well, in the same way, at the second coming, all, all, how many? And that's the next question. Who will bow and confess? All of creation, both believing and unbelieving, all of creation, including those in heaven and angels and humans, on earth, believing and unbelieving, under the earth, the dead will be raised up and the demons will, in chained in darkness, will be let loose. 
Because it says in Romans 14, 11, as is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Pretty mind-blowing to think that both the believing and the unbelieving will confess and bow the knee in resurrected bodies. Some resurrected to judgment. Some will do it against their will. It's not what they freely chose, but it's what is true. And they will confess it. And in confessing it, their judgment will be sealed and they'll be thrown into eternal suffering and darkness. But those who before Christ comes again freely, freely confesses this, freely bows the knee. And I hope, I hope that's every one of you. I hope that you have freely bowed the knee. You have confessed with your heart that Jesus is Lord. Wow. So what do, what do we learn from this? What do we learn from this? Basically this. The spirit of Christmas is the spirit of surrendering everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, have you unwrapped Christmas yet and found a crown? As I thought through, how do we apply this? There's three things I want you to think about. Surrendering everything to King Jesus begins with surrendering your enslaved self. Be set free. Accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. Give Him and surrender your enslaved self and say, Jesus set me free. But once you're delivered... Surrender your delivered self and be set free from living for yourself. Have this spirit in yourself which was in Christ Jesus. Because here's the mind-blowing thing about this. Jesus is super exalted, comes back, the whole universe is bowing the knee, confessing, the ma- uh, confessing with the mouth, and for 1,000 years He reigns on this earth. And you know what He does at the end of 1,000 years? He surrenders it all back to the Father. Now, I think that's amazing. You see, even the exalted servant is submissive to the Father. You know, he could have said, hey, I earned this. But he knew he didn't earn it. He could have said, I deserve this. This has to be this way. But he knew it didn't. He surrendered everything. Listen, like Jesus, we are going to be exalted. But we're going to be exalted with a submissive spirit. So... Let's live that out now. Amen? Does that make sense? And then you say, how do I know? I think I did this. It's tested by your attitude and actions in serving others. And we're going to talk more about that next week when we look at the community. Let's pray. Father, I I pray for each one here that we'd take a hard look at where we are in relation to you what we think about you, about who you are, and that we really examine, have we confessed? Have we really bowed the knee in who is sitting on the throne of my heart? If anyone's here that doesn't know Jesus, I pray that they would confess him as the one true God. There is salvation in no other. There is no other God. And if we have done that, I pray that we would have that surrendered, submissive spirit to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who He Himself will surrender all things to the Father. Lord, may we confess Jesus is Lord with our lives and our lips. 
to the glory of you. All God's people said, amen.